Thank you for joining us for the Tucson Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Brent Armstrong. This podcast features the messages from the teaching and preaching ministry at our church. Tucson Baptist Church is located in Tucson, Arizona, and we are committed to loving God, growing together, and reaching our community. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit TucsonBaptist.com. We pray that today's message is an encouragement to you. This morning, we're going to look at Philippians chapter number one. Philippians chapter number one. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter one as we begin this morning's message. And uh, yesterday was a sad day in college basketball. Coach K finished his career in Cameron Indoor Stadium, and uh, to make matters worse, they lost to their arch rival, North Carolina. And uh, Jeremy Trainer is a massive uh, North Carolina fan, and uh, he, he was walking towards me this morning, and I went the other direction. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to hear this morning. And, uh, um, and as I was thinking about this morning's message, and I was watching that game uh, through tears in my eyes, uh, I was just am- amazed. Uh, Coach K, I was going to say his name, but I knew I'd uh, butcher it this morning. So I know it's Coach K, he coaches Duke basketball, and he's been coaching for some 40 years now. And yesterday was his retirement uh, there in uh, his Cameron Indoor Stadium, the stadium that they played. And he was able to invite some 200 of his former players back to the stadium to be with him for his final game, for his final moments there as the coach of Duke. Some 90, 96 players took up that invitation and they came back. And it was just a sight to behold. That many players coming back from one coach that was there for his, basically his lifetime. And as I was thinking about that and as I was praying about this morning's message, it was amazing to see that Coach K was able to get some 200 players from all around the world, really, to come to Durham, North Carolina, and to give part of their life to play basketball, a meaningless thing that is for our entertainment. And he was able to get all of those 200 people to buy into the, Duke calls it the brotherhood. He was able to get them in to buy into a Duke identity. And this Duke identity led to a team unity. So from 200 different people from all around the world, they were able to come together. And they were able to buy into the Duke philosophy. And there was unity on the team, even though they came from different backgrounds different cultures, different uh, family dynamics. They came from all different, all different walks of life, but when they came to Duke, they were able to buy into an identity. And this morning, we're going to talk about, the title of my message is, Heavenly Identity Leads to Earthly Unity. Heavenly Identity Leads to Earthly Unity. You know, we are a blessed church, amen? For 60, over 60 years, this church has had two senior pastors, To be honest with you, that is not normal. And I believe that the reason that this church is thriving, that this church is going forth, is because there is unity in this church, for which I am very thankful. And while this message is an encouragement that we are are doing a good job, that we are a unified spirit, this message is also a challenge to us too. Because the moment that we forget where our identity lies... The moment begins for there to become disunity. And here in this passage in Philippians chapter 1, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. And there I would uh, invite your attention to verse number 27. We'll just read two verses this morning. The Bible says this, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. 
that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Would you join me as we open this sermon in prayer? Lord, I need you this morning. Lord, our church needs you this morning. Lord, you have given the ultimate task of evangelism to your church. And in order for us to fulfill the mission of reaching our community and our, our, our nation, our world with your gospel, Lord, we need to have unity in our church. And Lord, every one of us, we are blessed to be in a church that for 60 some odd years has been a unified church around a kingdom mindset. And Lord, I pray that this, this morning that you'll just, uh, that you'll go forth and that you'll just help our hearts to make sure that we are unified in our mission, unified in our spirit. And I pray that you'll bless this message now in Jesus' name, amen. Again, Paul is writing here to the church in Philippi, and he is writing to a favored church. And all throughout this, this entire book, there are words of encouragement and words of endearment. And in verse number 3 of chapter 1, it says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Paul was very thankful for this church in Philippi. Probably for a couple of reasons. Maybe it was one of the ones that, I, it was definitely was one of the churches that he stopped on a missionary's journey. It was a church that was able to send him financial support through his ministry. And so Paul had a, a very, uh, a spirit of endearment to this Philippian church. And up until verse number 27 in Philippians chapter 1, there was a lot of speak of encouragement and uplifting and being thankful for this church. Paul had visited during a missionary journey, and so he knew much about this church. However, Paul had heard this church had some issues that were preventing them from fulfilling its mission. Paul wrote this uh, letter from, uh, uh, from when he was in Rome, several hundred miles away, six weeks journey away. And so he was sitting there in prison in Rome, and he wrote this letter to the church in Philippi because he, he loved this church, he believed in this church, and he wanted this church to continue in unity. Because he understood this, unity in the church is absolutely necessary in order for it to fulfill its mission. Unity in the church is absolutely necessary in order for it to fulfill its mission. And this morning, let's look at how heavenly identity leads to earthly unity. There in verse 27, the very first part of that verse, he again, he, up until this point, he's very encouraging. He's uplifting. He's thanking God for, for who they are. But then he begins, verse 20 says this, Only let your conversation... Be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Uh, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. First this morning, we need to understand that there's the war for your identity. The war for your identity. Paul knew that this church in Philippi was struggling with unity. And what's interesting is that the very second part of verse 27, he begins to address the unity. He says you need to be in one spirit and one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. But he begins verse 27 by not addressing the unity but by addressing their identity. Because in verse 27, the word there, conversation, as we read conversation, many of us would say, oh, he's talking about the words that we say. 
our conversation, well, well, we converse with other people, but that's not necessarily the, the direction that he was going with this. The word conversation has two different definitions. First of all, it's talking the, about the manner in which one lives, the, the conduct that one has. So Paul is telling them to act in a way that is synonymous, that is, that is how a Christian should act. Because there was a vast difference from the Roman culture of the time to the Christian conduct, they were to choose their actions based upon their Christian values that they possess and not that of the world's culture. However, the second definition is where Paul really uh, was trying to emphasize. Not only was conversation talking about the manner in which one lives, the second definition is talking about the conduct of worthy citizens. The conduct of worthy citizens. And this is where Paul strikes a chord with these Christians. You see, the city of Philippi was refounded as a Roman colony in 42 BC. And up until that point, the Roman Empire, they were beginning to expand and they were beginning to take over cities. And and Philippi was just one of those cities. Because it was part of the Roman Empire, many of those who lived in this city were Roman citizens. With this citizenship, they were given the right to marry, to vote, to have a contract that was legally bound. And it was almost a status symbol to have a Roman citizenship. However, just because you lived in a Roman province or a colony or the empire in general did not mean that you were granted Roman citizenship. And one of the ways that you were granted Roman citizenship was you could give your life to serve to protect Rome. And many commentators believe that the city of Philippi was where the Roman Empire placed retired soldiers. And so Paul is addressing this here. He's saying, I know that you gave your life to serve the Roman Empire, and that is a worthy cause, but that is far superior for the kingdom of God. And so Paul is really addressing here that that they need to make sure that they, while they live in the Roman Empire, they are not of the Roman Empire. Paul was acknowledging their earthly citizenship, but pointing out its inferiority to their heavenly citizenship. Paul was pointing out to the readers of this letter that being in Christ was far superior to being in Rome. Therefore, the Christians in Philippi were to conduct themselves as worthy citizens, not of Rome, but of their heavenly kingdom. And Jesus reminds us of this truth in Matthew 6, verse 24. The Bible says, Jesus says, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one, or he will love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You see, there is a war for our identity. It is impossible, it is impossible to hold our heavenly identity and your earthly identity on the same level. It is hard to say, hey, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a proud citizen, but I'm also a proud citizen of heaven. They are not on the same level. They are incomparable in their significance, and they cannot be held together. Now, why is that? Why is it impossible for them? It's impossible because the two kingdoms are at war with each other. The two kingdoms that we are citizens of are at war with each other. We are kingdom, we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, amen? If you are a Christian and you know Jesus as your savior, you are a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. But we are also here on earth. And we're citizens of planet earth, United States of America, 
And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful to be citizens of both kingdoms. However, while I'm thankful to be citizens of both kingdoms, we have to make sure that we understand that they are at war with one another. There in your notes, there's a poem that someone wrote, and it says this, Nay, world, I turn away, though thou seem fair and good. That friendly, outstretched hand of thine is stained with Jesus' blood. The, king, the citizenship of our earthly kingdom is the kingdom that crucified our Savior. And yet so many times we find our identity in the earthly philosophy, in the world's philosophy, and therefore we are turning our back on our heavenly citizenship and our heavenly kingdom. The manner in which we live is based on the priority of our citizenship. And there in your notes you'll see that Christian citizenship should have priority over earthly citizenship. Christian citizenship should have priority over earthly citizenship. Every day when we wake up, we determine, do I please God or do I please self? Do I honor God with my life or do I honor the world's philosophies? Joshua faced this in Joshua 24, 15. And if, and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua knew that his kingdom citizenship was way more important than his earthly citizenship. Based on this verse in Joshua, when there was a conflict between the heavenly kingdom and his earthly kingdom, his actions were rooted in the kingdom that had a higher priority. Now you might be wondering, well, you say that these two kingdoms are at war with one another. You say that the earthly kingdom is at war with the heavenly kingdom, and that the heavenly kingdom is at war with the earthly kingdom. How can, we, how can we make sure that we understand this? Well, you see, our earthly kingdom says that abortions are allowed. Many states here in America, abortions are allowed. Yet the heavenly kingdom says, Psalm 139, 13 to 14, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. The earthly kingdom that we are citizens of says, this is okay. Now, Christians, we would say, no, that's not okay. No, we don't believe that. Why? Because we believe the heavenly kingdom says this, Psalm 139, I will praise you, God, because in my mother's womb, you formed me, you had a purpose for me, you created me fearfully and wonderfully, so I'm going to praise you for that. And so our heavenly kingdom says, no, abortions are not right. That's a pretty black and white, that's a pretty black and white situation. So our earthly kingdom says abortions are allowed. But our earthly kingdom also says genders are suggestions. Genders are fluid. Genders are, you could decide your gender. And, and while we might laugh at that, why is it so serious that we address it? Because the heavenly kingdom, Bible says in Genesis 5 verse 2, that male and female created he them. So God created the, the babies in the womb male or female. So therefore, when our earthly kingdom says, genders are fluid, we can decide, it's up to my feelings, we might say, well, I don't know what to, how to argue that. The heavenly kingdom, the ones that we are more, uh, that we are citizens of, should take a higher priority and say, hey, I know you feel that way, but that's not right. We need to make sure that we are taking stands. The earthly kingdom says abortions are allowed, that genders are suggestions, and it also says that marriage is fluid. 
marriage, uh, biblically, marriage historically has always been between man, a male, and a female. Amen? Uh, just make sure. I'm, I'm talking to the Christians here this morning, right? Historically speaking, biblically speaking, God set male and female to come together in a union and a covenant before God in which they are to live their lives together for his honor and his glory. Mark 10, verse 6 through 9 says, But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Again, it's just reemphasizing the truth that that's how God created them. For this cause shall a man, so there's genders, leave his father and mother. Oh, that's right, because that's what it's supposed to be. They're supposed to leave that and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. No, all around our country and all around this world, it's that the union that God has established is being taken away. And you might say, well, that's just our culture just going that direction where uh, homosexuality is fine. It could be a man, a man, a woman, a woman. It, it could be three people. It could be an animal and a person. And hey, that's just what they want to do. But listen, this morning it's important because there's a war going on. There's a war that we're engaged in. Culture is saying, no, it's okay, this is fine, but as, as citizens of an earthly kingdom, we are at war this morning. We need to understand that. But then the fourth one there in your notes, you'll see that sexual activity is permissible, inside and outside of marriage. Man, when I was in college, I worked at a, a, at a, a Holiday Inn Express, and I uh, was able to eat their, their wonderful cinnamon rolls, and uh, it was great. But uh, when I worked at Holiday Inn Express, I went in one day to work, and I told my coworkers, Man, I just want to let you guys know that I got engaged. I'm about to get married. And you know their question, what they said? Oh, did, did you guys, are you, are you expecting a baby? <laughs> Sabrina, I remember, she, that's what she asked. Because in her mind, she was living in the world. She was of the world. She said, oh, you're already engaging in it. So now that you have a child, you just need to shack up together. You need to make it permanent. You see, the world's philosophy, that's how they think. The world's philosophy says, hey, sexual activity is permissible outside of marriage. Hey, give it a go before you get married. Hey, make sure you can see if you like it or not before you spend your entire life with that person. But God says this in 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Again, the world's philosophy, the world's kingdom is at war with the heavenly kingdom. And we need to make sure that we are prioritizing our heavenly citizenship over our earthly citizenship. While we are not of this world, we are still in this world. Therefore, not only should our Christian citizenship take priority over our earthly citizenship, but you'll know, secondly, Christian citizenship should influence our earthly citizenship. Christian citizenship should influence our earthly citizenship. You might be looking around and saying, Lord, please come quickly. The world is getting worse and worse. I don't know what I could do. Uh, maybe let's just go build a bomb shelter and live in it because we don't know what's going to happen. But the Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And because we are in this world, we can influence this world. Okay? Because we are still in this world, we can influence this world. How can we do that? A couple of examples there. We can pray for our leaders. Not only could we pray for our leaders, we should pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy 2, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in, what's that next word? Authority. 
that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That's a tough verse when there's someone in the, the Oval Office that we don't agree with, isn't it? That's a tough verse when we're in a, in a, a relationship with a husband and wife and we're at odds with the, hus- the spouse. That's a hard verse for us to, to tangibly do when there's ought on earth. But because we are citizens of heaven and our heavenly citizenship is more important than our earthly citizenship, we should pray for our leaders. Not only should we pray for our leaders, we should be good neighbors. We should be good neighbors. Galatians 5 verse 14, For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Man, I tell you what, the way that we describe neighbors is very important. Our neighbor is not just the person that's to the north or south of us or the east or west of our, of our location. The neighbors are those people that we interact with on a day-to-day basis, and we should give, be good neighbors to them. We should also love your enemies. The Luke 6 says, But I say unto you, which here, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. Man, all these are difficult if our priority is our earthly citizenship. But because our, our, our priority is our heavenly citizenship, we pray for our leaders. We be good neighbors. We love our enemies. We love our spouse. Ephesians 5.33. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. And then parents, we need to be training our children. Not someone else training your children. Parents should be training your children. Deuteronomy 11 verse 19. And he shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house, and thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. This morning, we spent a significant amount of time looking at the war that's happening between the heavenly kingdom and the earthly kingdom. But let me ask you this question. Where is your identity rooted this morning? Where is your identity rooted this morning? Is your identity rooted in the earthly kingdom? Or is your identity rooted in the heavenly kingdom? The easiest way to answer that question is to look at your actions. The easiest way to answer that is to look at your actions and to evaluate how you interact with each other and with one another. So not only is there a war for our identity, notice with me secondly, that there's the consistency of your actions. The consistency of your actions. So Paul begins writing in verse 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Hey, listen, our identity should be that of of a heavenly kingdom. We should be acting this way. But then he goes on to say this, that whether I am absent or I am present, I may hear of your affairs. Now, remember, Paul isn't in Philippi when he's writing this, right? He is in Rome some uh, 800 miles away. It's a six-week journey that it would take someone to, to get in a boat, to go across the sea, to, to then hike and to, to walk the rest of the way. And so it says it would take some six weeks to get from Philippi to Rome. But what's interesting here is that Paul knew that there was disunity in the church. He was a long ways away. So think about this. So Paul was uh, six weeks away, journey 800 miles so Paul, in order for Paul to understand this, there had to be disunity in the church. So someone said, oh no, I have to go tell Paul. So they grabbed their stuff. For six weeks, they went to Rome. They had to find Rome in a prison, and they got to Rome. They said, Paul, you're not going to like this, but there's disunity in the Philippian church. Paul says, okay, well, let me write a letter. Stop being disunified. Be, is that what he says? 
No, he writes a four-chapter letter that's full of endearment, that's full of encouragement. But in there, he says five or six times, have one mind, have one spirit, strive together for the faith of the gospel, be unified. So Paul pens that letter and says, okay, that's good. Gives it to who? Epaphroditus, chapter 2 says, so Epaphroditus walks back six weeks. And so now we are three months into this situation, and he presents it to the leaders, and now they can address the unity problem that's in the church. Paul knew their actions because they were repetitive. They were repetitive. They were ongoing. The, the consistency of your actions. So Paul was saying, listen, for six weeks, for, for 12 months, or for uh, 12 weeks, you have been living a life of disunity. Cut it out. Stop it. I want, next time I hear you, I want to make sure that you are having a unified spirit. Our actions speak louder than our words. Our actions are seen by others and truly show the condition of our hearts. Our actions speak louder than our words. And Paul says, listen, the next time I hear the Philippian church, I want to hear this. Notice with me, uh, point number three this morning, the outcomes of a heavenly identity. The outcomes of a heavenly identity. Paul begins this, this, these two verses by saying, change your identity. Your identity is not in the Philippian, church, the Philippian government. Your identity is not in this earthly citizenship. Your identity is in a heavenly citizenship, so therefore your actions should show that. The end of verse 27, he says this, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. There's four outcomes that we'll see this morning. First of all, there, verse 27, that we'll have one spirit. Heavenly identity leads to earthly unity. And that the, the spirit he's talking about is the spirit of unity. In the Philippian church, we've already identified that there was a spirit of disunity. In fact, if you turn over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, he calls out the two people in the church who are not unified. Could you imagine that? For all the world to see, he says, I beseech Yodius and I beseech Syntyche uh, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. So he begins by saying, hey, the church needs to be unified. The church should have the same spirit. Okay, hey, you two ladies over here, if you didn't hear me, I'm talking about you two. Because they said, I need to make sure that the church has one spirit, and that's the spirit of unity. Paul calls out the two ladies who are sowing division. Now, it's a very important thing to note this morning, that Paul gives allowance for disagreement in the church, but he does not give allowance for division in the church. That's a crucial thought that we have to make sure that we understand. Paul gives allowance for disagreement in the church, but he does not give allowance for division in the church. If you notice there in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15 through 18, Paul is writing to this church, says, listen, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? So about saying, listen, on this side, I've got someone preaching the gospel, and it's not how I would do it. He, the motivation for the gospel preaching is wrong. On this side, it's of love, and, and I, I would appreciate this one. So what are we supposed to do when we have two people that we don't agree with in the church? He goes on to say this, What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. 
Paul is saying, listen, there's people within the church that I don't agree with, but I could still be unified in spirit because God's kingdom is being built. I don't agree with it, but I'm not going to sow division over it. And then 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3 through 7, Paul is writing the church in Corinth, and the same thing is happening. It says this, For ye are yet carnal, and whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted Apollos' water, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Paul was not trying to build his, 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 his following. Paul was not here to make sure he was famous. Paul was only here to make sure that the heavenly kingdom was built and edified. The church needs to be a spirit of unity. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And I'm thankful that our church is a unified church, and I pray that it continues to be so. So there's one spirit the Bible talks about here, and that's the spirit of unity. But then it says there's also not one spirit, but also with one mind. The mind that Paul is addressing is the seat of our feelings, our desires, our affections. Paul was pointing them toward a common desire. Paul was saying we can have one spirit of unity, but we need to have one mind, one desire, one affection, one attention. Because there was disunity, Paul was addressing their lack of having a kingdom mindset. He was addressing their lack of having a kingdom mindset. Paul knew that if they were acting out of a kingdom identity, their desires and motivations within the church would grow towards unity. Again, he's, he's focusing that they have a heavenly identity because heavenly identity leads to earthly unity. So they have one mind, one spirit. And then it goes on to say, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So not only is there one spirit and one mind, there's one mission. There's one mission, and we see that in verse 27. Paul's main concern for these Christians was not that they would, that was that they would unite together in getting the gospel out. Why is that so important? You see, a divided church, a disunified church, is one that has lost its focus. A disunified church is one that has lost its focus. Why do we gather this morning? What is the purpose? Is the purpose to fellowship? A little bit. Is the purpose to worship God? Yes. Is the purpose to make sure that the coffee is the right flavor and the right temperature? Not so much. But you see a disunified church, here's what happens. Because they lose their focus, they begin focusing on trivial things that don't matter in the life of eternity. So a divided church is one that has lost its focus. But then secondly, a divided church is one that has lost its impact. A divided church, when you lose your focus, you lose your impact. Because when you have 600 people at Tucson Baptist Church that are together in one mission, the impact that we can have is astounding. But if we have five sections of 20 people that are, I want to do this thing, or I want to do this thing. And, and so we have, we have all these different outreaches, and we have all these different things, and all these different missions, then we're not going to be as strong as we could be as a unified church. So a divided church has lost its impact because it's lost its focus, but then a divided church is one in which Satan has been able to sidetrack. A divided church is one in which Satan has been able to sidetrack. 
A church that is not unified is not fulfilling the purpose that was given to her by God. God has given the church the objective of worshiping him collectively and sharing the gospel together. God has given us the church, the, church the, the, the mission of worshiping him collectively and then sharing the gospel together. So we've seen that there's one mission, one mind, um, one spirit. But then lastly, notice in verse 28. A lot of times when we read verse 27, we think that's the verse. But then there's a semicolon that goes into verse 28. And then he, I noticed lastly, verse 28, he's given us one assurance. He's given us one assurance. What is that assurance? They're going to face persecution. Now, in theory, if he was writing this letter, if it was me, I probably wouldn't have added this, right? Because a, a coach that's trying to rah-rah up, get his people ready to go, he's going to give out all the positive. He's like, hey, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and everybody's on board. And everybody's, yeah, we're going to go do this. And then Paul says, oh, by the way, now that you're on board, just know this. I, I'm going to give you one assurance. You're going to face persecution. That's what it says there in verse 20. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries. Our adversaries are the enemies. And it says, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. God, or Paul is promising them that they will suffer persecution. Paul is telling them to be unified, but then telling them to expect persecution. Paul understood that persecution was very important. This is not the definition of a rah-rah speech. This was to show them, to show these Christians that suffering for Christ's sake was a gift from God. A gift that was not given to everyone. Paul says, if you suffer persecution, it is a gift from God. But Paul took it a step further in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. Paul was willing to have persecution come on him, was, uh, was willing to have tribulation and physical inf infirmities come upon him so that way he could have the power of Christ on him so he could do more with the gospel of Christ. Hey, Dan, can I have you come up here? Pastor Howard, can you come up here? Um, let's see here. Brother Bud Savage, could you come up here? As we close this morning, I want us just to look at one quick illustration. The Bible, we just looked this morning, that heavenly identity leads to earthly unity. You know, I'm thankful for each of these men, and each of these men have uh, played a huge impact in my life. And you guys come close to me, and each one of them are involved heavily in our, heavily in our church. Dan is our Awana commander. He's a trustee in our church, and, and uh, for Dan, the Awana ministry is very important. In fact, we had some, we had over, right around over 100 kids here this past Wednesday. Can you imagine that? 100 kids who are here in a ministry learning God's word. Amen for that, right? So Dan's doing a great job there. Pastor Howard is, um, he's a gentle giant. I remember when I uh, got uh, ordained, I told Pastor Howard, when I retire, I want to be Pastor Howard. And I don't think I can get the, get the height, but, but you know, Pastor Howard has made general, generational impact because of his, his authenticity, and that's what I desire. And then Brother Bud, the chairman of our board of deacons, and uh, Brother Bud has been, uh, he's a reverend, he's, served his, he's given his life to serve, serve the Lord. And uh, he's one of our growth group teachers. And so what, what the illustration I want us to have this morning is, come together, guys, come together as well, link arms, is that the Bible says that because we are unified, 
we are not going to go different directions. So, Paul, so Dan you can walk that way. He's, he wants the Awana ministry to focus, and he wants it to keep going. But guess what? Hey, that's not the overall mission of the church. That, that's important. But hey, listen, what, what's the overall mission? It's to reach people with the gospel. So Dan, Dan says, hey, let's go do this. Let's, hey, let's, let's have one, one mission. And he could say, fine, I quit. I, I'm done with this place. And he could have disunity, but no, Dan says, hey, listen, I'm locked in. Because his, his identity isn't in his position. His identity is in being a child of God and serving kids. Pastor Howard could say, man, I just retired and, and I don't have a permanent office, right? And that's, that's what we're saying. And, and he could say, they don't like me here and they don't, they don't do this. And, and he could say, you know what, it, man, my needs weren't met. I didn't get what I, what I deserved. And, and he could say, I, I'm done. But you know what, he's bought in because his, his identity is not in his position. His identity is being in a child of the king. And then Brother Bud, just recently, this, this past week, I said, hey, Brother Bud, he teaches one of our growth groups. I said, hey, we're going to have a transition. I need your class to move to the auditorium. And you know what he told me? No. Can you believe that? He said no. But, no, but Brother Bud says, hey, he said, well, I'll do anything to help this church. Brother Bud could be going that direction. He could be saying, hey, I, they, I, got, I have this massive place, and I have to fill this auditorium. And, and he could have a spirit of disunity, but he's, he's locked in because there's a spirit of unity. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Next time, I'm going to get, like, smaller guys because my arms are up here the whole time. <laughs> Here's what I want us to understand this morning, is that our unity is rooted in our identity. And there is a war for our identity that if we're not careful, we don't even realize that we're engaged in a war. But the Bible says this, that we do not fight against the, we don't fight against principalities, against powers, we fight against the rulers of darkness of this world. There's a spiritual war that is going on that every one of us are engaged with. And God has given Tucson Baptist Church a mission. And you know what? We've been here for 63 years. And by God's grace, we'll be here another 63 years. And we'll be a unified church that's continually to reach people in Tucson, that's continuing to support missionaries around the world, that's, com- that's continually seeing families, the children come and learn more about God, families edified, families grown together. Why? Because our identity is in our heavenly citizenship. This morning, as we close, I ask you this question. Where is your identity rooted? Is there a spirit of disunity in your life right now? I was talking to a pastor this past week, and we were in his office, and, and I was kind of talking about this message, and, and uh, I said this. I said, frankly speaking, every single person in this church should be able to go to dinner with another person in this church and be 100% perfect with it might not be the, the most fun dinner you've ever had. It might be a little bit difficult. But if there's any hint of disunity in this church, it needs to be addressed. If there's any hint of disunity in this church, we're going to be distracted. If there's any hint of disunity in this church, we will lose our focus and stop fulfilling the mission that God has given to us. Let's